For us as citizens, we got to go out there, we got to vote. Elections matter, and here they come. We count our votes early and get them on election night so that voters have confidence. New rules, disputed districts, your ballot, and the ability to cast it. With redistricting can come some confusion. Florida's man at the top, the Secretary of State, right here, live. Not an ounce of truth. Arrested, suspended, and fighting back. This is a work of fiction by this prosecutor. And just weeks to election, the Miami Challengers, live. Your free will, your ability for us to have free choice is a gift. Flipping the script. Our main focus is collecting as many petitions as possible. A call to action for abortion rights on the ballot. We're going to do everything we can, I hope, to stop them from doing this. A downside to the state plan for affordable homes. This is like crossing that line of hyperdevelopment. Local leaders scramble to manage your neighborhood's future. The big news of the week and the newsmakers this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning. I'm Glenna Milberg. Theme show today for the next hour. It's about ballots and choices, and you have a lot of both ahead. The first elections of campaign season around South Florida are weeks away, and we begin at the state level. The changes coming to an election near you, and as all things Florida are, some are controversial and concerning to a lot of people. And so we have some questions for the person at the top. Florida's Secretary of State, Cord Bird, live with us today right here in the studio. Secretary Bird, it is so nice to have you. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here on Constitution Day. A Constitution Day. Happy Constitution Same Day to, to everybody. So I want to start with the news of the week. This is kind of statewide. It's a, um, I guess, a quintessentially North Florida congressional seat we're talking about, but with implications for everybody. And that is the a judge in Tallahassee decided that the redistricting of Florida by the legislature was unconstitutional, redrew a traditionally black district, uh, split it up. So that was decided unconstitutional. You, on behalf of the state, your job is to appeal it. Tell us, tell us why. What is what is the defense of that map that a judge calls unconstitutional? Sure. Uh, so what we have is a, is a tension between the federal constitution, the 14th Amendment, and the, uh, the state constitution. So that really is the legal issue that needs to be decided and whether or not when the legislature passed its Congressional District 5, whether or not which, which constitution controls. And that's what we will be appealing to the Florida Supreme Court. So the, the judge, Jay Lee Marsh, said in his opinion was that the, it diminished redistricting and breaking up that one district diminished the ability of black voters to elect a representative of their choice. That, that's kind of the Voting Rights Act. It's also Florida's uh, constitutional act in forming districts that are fair and equal and also allow minority representation. So can detail for us how the 14th Amendment would not jive with that. Right, so the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment says you can't use race as the criteria for when you, when you draft laws. And so the question is whether or not uh, the, the 14th Amendment and that the Equal Protection Clause and that you can't use race trumps the Florida Constitution, which says that, that has that diminishment language from the Voting Rights Act. And it gets very, very complicated. Other states, Alabama, North Carolina, are going through similar, um, uh, similar exercises because we only do this once every decade. So does it uh, concern you as a, you know, as a 
person in the administration right now, does it concern you that well, North Florida has no black representation in Congress right now? And how do you how do you rectify that? Sure. Well, I mean, the voters have the opportunity to, to go to the polls and vote. I mean, we have uh, Congressman Donalds, um, who's a black member of, of the, the delegation in Washington, and he's represented by a majority white district. So I think we need to be very careful to assume that, that certain groups of people are only going to vote a certain way when they go to the polls. Yeah, valid point. So right now, the, the, uh, the maps that have now been ruled unconstitutional, are the maps still in play until this plays out in court? Is that right? That's correct, because uh, once we appealed a, a stay, an automatic stay goes in place. So once uh, that stay will remain in place and the congressional districts as drawn by the legislature will remain until the court determines otherwise. Okay, let's get into elections for everybody. A, a whole slate of new election law coming down the pike. Uh, we're going into city elections mm -hmm. in just a couple of months. We're a year away in campaign season. So I want to kind of take take us through some of the new stipulations, new laws, and I think the one that really has been raising eyebrows, and pe a lot of people don't realize, vote by mail, you've really got to be on that this year, because how many, 2.8 mil, 2 million people voted by mail in 22, mm -hmm. and weeks after that, everybody's taken off the vote by mail request logs and has to do it again. How, what are you seeing in your office? Are, are you concerned that people are really not going to get that? I don't know that they're paying attention just yet, but I know our office and the supervisors, all 67 around the state, are really messaging to voters, if your preferred choice is to vote by mail, then it's critical that you go ahead and, and put your request back in. So I know those are coming in. I know we're messaging. The supervisors are messaging. And that would be my, my message to your viewers today is to, if, if you are a vote-by-mail voter, which about a third of Floridians vote by mail. A lot. A lot do. And to go ahead and put that request back in. Because we have March 19th of 2024, we have the presidential preference primary in Florida. So it's it's not, you know, it's not, you don't have until late next year. You have early 2024 to get those in. You know, that's been in the news this week, too, as you know. I'm not going to ask you about that. We're not going to get into partisan politics. <laughs> today. <laughs> we want to keep it nice and nonpartisan because that's your role right now. Right. Um, and, and that's so a lot of what you're doing, though, is administrating what has been some fairly partisan conservative rules that are, are really, um, in some cases, concerning a lot of people. And mm -hmm. one of those is this office, the new Office of Election Crimes mm -hmm. and Security. I think nobody would say, I don't want secure elections. Of course, right. everyone wants secure elections. But but this, ha and components of this, and the budget was doubled this mm -hmm. past session, has really um, concerned a lot of people to the effect that uh, there's kind of a chilling effect on some people who aren't sure whether they can vote, are they going to be swept up in a fraud arrest that they for voting when they shouldn't? How, how do you tell people, stay calm, here's what you do, we're not going to prosecute you willy-nilly? Right. Well, it's first off, it's, it's critical, and the governor and the legislature have made clear that uh, all of our laws, including our election laws, are going to be enforced in Florida. If you're abiding by the law, you have, you have, uh, you have no, no, no worries. If you have questions, if you are uncertain about your eligibility to vote, you can contact the supervisor of elections. You can contact my office. We will, for free, give people a, a legal opinion, an advisory opinion on their eligibility to vote. So no one should have fear that they're going to be arrested at the polls. So if someone calls your office with a number, you will be able to tell them right then and there? 
you can you are eligible or you're not not right then and there we have to have our lawyers go through and, and do the analysis because sometimes we have to find uh, decades-old criminal records and contact a clerk of court so it's not it, it, so if you have this question contact us now don't wait this is we, the be careful what right, you wish for right, call. because it's not <laughs> yeah. it's not um, but we're this we're not trying to create felons we are trying to enforce our laws while allowing anybody who's eligible vote to exercise the franchise and, and one last thing and I know we have a very short time together the three PVROs I, that makes me think of Star Wars <laughs> C3PO yes, yes. okay third-party voter registration organizations we at Local 10 have reported in the past mm -hmm. that there has been an effort to surreptitiously through these volunteers organizations change people's voter registrations without their knowledge um, there was a crackdown on these mm -hmm. for better or worse more oversight is essential right. but also there are people saying well now it's not that easy to register to vote these were all volunteers mm -hmm. you know for the most part hundreds of organizations really with a very good intention of getting people to vote are you concerned now that the people who everyone who wants to cast a vote register and do it do not have the same easy, efficient ways to do so under these new laws. I, I would disagree and say we make it incredibly. That was a question, not sure, an opinion. No, no. Okay. I, we make it incredibly easy to to register to vote in Florida. Once you can, you go to your supervisors of elections. You can go to um, onlinevoterregistration.org in Florida. You can uh, go to your library, your local library. We make it really easy. But what we found is some of these groups, and most of them do a fantastic job, but some of these third-party voter registration organizations don't do a great job and when they make a mistake whether intentional or not they disenfranchise a voter so when I get a call from a mom who's saying my 18 year old who was so excited to go vote was not allowed to vote because the three PVRO didn't turn their registration in timely that's my concern is so that people are not disenfranchised so people I guess the the message is everybody really has to take responsibility for their own they, they do and yeah. the courts have said that and in, in, in a citizenship we're talking about the constitutional constitution day to be to be a citizen means to be an active participant and we make all of the information available. We sure do appreciate your time, your effort to come in. I know you're speaking at St. Thomas tomorrow. Yes, yes my uh, my alma mater from my law school. Amazing. Yes. Secretary Cordbird, thanks so much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Up next, major Miami plot twist in an election coming up in weeks. The arrest and suspension of Alex Diaz de la Portilla, his opponents. Live with us next. Not an ounce of truth. Not an ounce of truth to those allegations. Same thing that's happening to President Trump at the national level with four different false, four different false prosecutions is happening to me in Miami at the local level. With City of Miami elections fewer than two months away, the bombshell corruption-related arrest this week of incumbent Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla is a major plot twist. Just over 24 hours later, the governor suspended him from office. But innocent until proven guilty, Diaz de la Portilla tells us he is out campaigning today. And so are two people running against him. And you will hear from both. First up, Marvin Tapia, who has long been involved in community work in Miami, especially in promoting Little Havana as a destination. Marvin, welcome to the program. 
Glenna, good morning. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. So any way to take your glasses off so well, we can yes. talk, people can see your face there. Hello. <laughs> so you, uh, you, I see you're out, you're literally out campaigning and I appreciate you yes. stopping and joining us, but tell us why you jumped into this race late last month, not very long ago, to challenge someone, an incumbent commissioner who is pretty powerful, <laughs> has a lot of money, and that was before he was arrested. Um, I'll tell you that it, it was never something that I said, I'm going to be commissioner one day. I've just been a community member, a very active uh, community member for, for as long as I can remember. It was just something that I've always loved to do, build community. I've loved to help people out. I, I actually created an investment company just so I can help small businesses so I can so people can know that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a helper. As always, how else can I help? Uh, I love the city. I love the cultures that are here. Um, and then a year ago, someone planted a seed. It's like, hey, you know what? You're next. You know, you should run. We really need some representation. And here we are. Here we are. Little did I know that it'd be this, uh, this crazy, this fast. Um, but I'm extremely excited to be able to represent our residents. I think that there's an incredible amount of lack of representation in our city. There's never, uh, we don't feel heard. We're, we feel ignored by our city and our local politicians. So I think that I know that I want to bring about uh, some real positive change for our residents. All right, so, well, let's get into that because those are really nice words, and if you are a really nice person, all that is great, but then when you get that chair, what what are the issues? What do you see as the biggest issues or hear from constituents as District 1 and Miami's biggest issues, and what can you do to, to make things happen? So the more I talk to people, uh, the more I realize just how much they, they don't even know who their commissioner is, they don't feel connected whatsoever. They feel ignored. Um, I'm a person from a community. I, I want to bring about that connection between our residents and our local office. I want. I want that. I want to bridge that gap. I know that. So that's main, number one. Number two is affordability. Uh, people just feel like they cannot live here. Uh, they try to reach our commissioner. They try to and, and just no answer. What can we do? Uh, developers are just coming in here and really just taking over our district. We have. I'm very proud to say that I, I, was, I spearheaded the project. I helped turn Little Havana into a national treasure, along with a lot of nonprofits. Um, and I'm very, very proud of that. Little Santo Domingo, as you know, a very large Dominican community in Alapata, part of District 1, is facing some of those similar issues. And I've talked to the nonprofits and the organizations, and with my experience and with the community input, I know that we can battle this together. I don't, Miami is unique. Miami is so special because of the cultures that call Miami home. We can't just ignore that. We need to give them a voice. We need to advocate for them. And we need to keep Miami as special as it is because the people are what make it that way. All right, so let me really get into some practical things about a campaign. Right now, I, the, last, the last contribution filing, you have no contributions in your campaign. Money is the mother's milk of politics as we hear for decades before. How do you manage with no money getting your message out against one, possibly two opponents, one of them being suspended at the moment, but the commissioner has a lot of money, millions of dollars. And, and may I say, from his voters' perspective, someone who gets things done for them, that is why they vote for him. So how do you combat them with, at the moment, no money? So before, when those reports came out, uh, I hadn't filed so or I hadn't done the report. The report hasn't come out. There is actually money in my 
in my bank account. It just hasn't been filed. I think my next date is coming up to file and all the uh, all the earnings, all the uh, contributions will be seen. So the, actually there is money because I have I've had to pay the consulting and the team. Um, there is money there. It just hasn't been reported yet uh, because it came that that report came out before I filed. Okay, uh, that, that's that makes sense. So so tell us who who is supporting you? Where is the where is your money coming from since we can't see that yet? Uh, very important key stakeholders, not just from the community and a very strong supportive family and friend system that I would not be here uh, without. But it, I wouldn't also have not nominated uh, not be part of this race if it weren't for the support, uh, key support of uh, strong of organizations and key uh, businesses in this district, aside from uh, um, other political support that I've received. Again, uh, I would not be here if I didn't have the support. I understand how important it is to be able to send mailers. I, under I understand how important it is to have a team and be able to pay those things. But what, I've, what, what I want the community to know is that as much money as this, uh, this individual has, um, it's more important to me, the residents, and for them to know how I hold them and the priority that they fall in, into, my, into my campaign. Residents come first. So, and I know as, as much as a campaigning as I've been, I, nonstop, I'm knocking on doors. I couldn't be in the studio today because I'm out. I stopped here at the park just so I can have good reception. But I'm talking to people day in and day out. And the, uh, the opinion is exactly the same. I've talked to over 500 residents. I think I've had one, one opponent, one person say, well, you know, uh, De La Portilla, everyone else, has been supportive. They're they're unfortunately disappointed with the uh, the lack of representation, with the lack of of uh, of movement that they've seen. No, nothing has happened. So I tell the, the residents, if you're happy with what you've seen in the last four years, you know where to vote. You know who to vote for. But as we can see, there has been nothing done in our community. We've been left uh, we've we've been left uh, uh, on hold. Uh, and so I know that that's something that I need. I need to bridge that gap between our residents and our and, and, and our local office. And that would, that's something that is on my top priority. If you get this District 1 seat, real quickly in the short time we have left, there are a number of people in the administration who take orders because the commission is their bosses. Anyone you would fire right off the bat in the city of Miami administration? Well, I'd have vote to, to get fire. Your one vote of five. Vote to fire. I'd have to get there and see. I'm, I'm, I'm a person that loves to learn and see. I'd go into City Hall and first would see how we can flip and turn our focus to the residents before I decided that I wanted to fire or come in guns blazing. I'm a person that built, uh, believes in community. I'm a person that believes in teamwork. I cannot do this alone. This takes uh, an entire village to flip uh, the type of corruption that we're seeing. If we really want to make a difference for our residents, which should be our number one priority, our residents and their well-being, then we need to do it as a team. Marvin, this is not something I'm on my own. Marvin Tapia, back to campaigning for you. We will be in touch over the next couple of months, and um, great to have you aboard the show. I, I appreciate the time, and I just want you to know that my main focus is our people and making a positive change for our, for our city. I know we can do it. Take care. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much. All right, there's another candidate for Miami Commission here, or is there? Next, the candidate who somehow got carved out of Diaz de la Portilla's district is now back in and challenging the city to prove otherwise.
Pamela candidate against this gentleman here in the city of Miami since February, and it appears that in this map that you've drawn up, my house is right outside the district, which I have lived there for 23 years as my residence, along with my wife and my daughters, homesteaded for 23 years. So what a coincidence that you guys, or somebody decided that they were going to cut it right there when it's been there like that in the district for years. Is he or isn't he qualified? Miami candidate Miguel Gabella filed to oppose Alex Diaz de la Portilla last February and somehow got carved out of the district for which he sued. He moved into another of his properties still within the district, amended the candidate forms, but the city still isn't listing him as a qualified candidate. Miguel Gabella is with us. Apparently, with all the qualifications of a candidate for Miami Commission that one needs and as a character in an only Miami election mystery at the moment. Miguel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Glenda. I appreciate being here. Glenda, no D. <laughs> it's Glenda. good. I've been Glenda. called worse. Um, so you presented the papers to the city clerk for your candidacy. Um, what happened? Why isn't the little word qualified next to your name yet? Because uh, apparently Mr. Portilla uh, had been pulling strings, uh, I imagine, with the city attorney, uh, Victoria Mendez, and uh, city clerk, uh, Todd Hannon, uh, because every the other candidates uh, had no problem, the other two candidates. Uh, the problem was with me, because, of course, Mr. Portilla uh, tried to draw, uh, drew my house out of the map back in June 14th, I had, after I had been campaigning since February, knock, knocking on thousands of doors and visiting thousands of people in the district. And uh, apparently he took a poll, uh, we took a poll also, and he knew he was upside down. He was gonna lose uh, in November, he's gonna lose. And so he decided this is the way uh, to do it for him, not have an opponent. Well, let and, me uh, let me just let me just jump out there and say those are pretty strong allegations. We have definitely no proof of that, and we don't have Alex Diaz de la Portilla here to refute them. So I, I do know though that you put those allegations on paper in a lawsuit that is right now pending. Um, and so I what I what I want to do, let's talk to you as from what we see independently, everything looks to be in order for you as a candidate. Um, so mm -hmm. let's talk about why are you running? I'm running because I've been in this district, uh, Glenna, for uh, more than 37 years. Uh, I've been a member of the community for more than that. And uh, I'm running because I see the discontent that the, the voter, the residents, the taxpayer has in District 1. Uh, there's lack of maintenance, infrastructure, the, the sidewalks are dirty, the streets are full of potholes. Uh, we need more uh, security, more police uh, in the area. Uh, and basically, uh, affordable housing is another problem that we have. And at the end of the day, the commissioner has had four years. Mr. Portilla has had four years to do the correct thing. And I see that he has not, not done it. And uh, I have uh, three properties in the district. I'm concerned because I'm a resident just like everybody else. I have to drive through these streets. And I think we deserve better. I think we deserve like other districts in the, uh, in the uh, city that are taken care of. And that's what I want to do for my district. I want to make it number one. I want it to progress. I need to create the conditions that people feel safe when they're uh, walking in the streets with their children, uh, with their families. I, I need to, to, you know, to want investment to come into the, to the area. Uh, the infrastructure needs a lot of attention because it's been, uh, you know, neglected for four years. And, and I'm here to do the piece of people's business. And the only person, by the way, that uh, took on Diaz de la Portilla in 2019, I was one of them. And in this year, I, I took on Diaz de la Portilla when nobody wanted to take him on since February of uh, this year. So 
I want to give back. This country has been very good to me. I'm a Cuban-American. And uh, this country, I came when I was six years old from Cuba. My parents brought me escaping communism. And this country has been very good to me and my family. And I want to give something back. I want to oh, serve. Okay. All right. So let me let me push back a little bit on that. There, there has actually been development in District 1 in Miami. That is Alapata. That is Wynwood. for people who don't know. Um, I'm going to challenge you a little bit on that because there has been a lot of development in those areas and there are voters who have been voting for the incumbent because whatever else anyone else might think or know these voters believe that he is delivering for them so because voter turnout is traditionally so poor in the city of Miami how do you convince voters otherwise it's very simple uh, Glenn I ran against him in 2019 he's a corrupt individual Okay, and he did a lot of cheating in 2019. As a matter of fact, I caught his uh, Diaz de la Portilla and his brother Rainier in residential plaza in November of 2019 uh, during the election. The, the, these guys, they don't care about the rules. The rules is for somebody else, for little people, not for them. Okay, well, let me let me just, and, and let for me, our well, purposes on this program, that. stipulate that those are allegations. He is arrested and suspended, and they are allegations uh, not proven just yet. Before we run out of time, I really, yep. um, my, my job is to challenge candidates and to press you on some very real issues despite Absolutely. some good intentions and great rhetoric. So right. you have been raising money since February, um, mm -hmm. what I can see in the records. You've raised $18,000 so far in your records. 14000 of that though is yours. And so on paper and from in the public record, the amount of support financially that you are showing is a fraction of what the incumbent is showing. How do you manage to get support and show support with that kind of contributor, contributor listing so far? Because Mr. Portilla uh, has pulled the strings in City Hall to get my name. Uh, you see all the other candidates, they say qualified except myself because that's discrimination because that's what he wants to do. He wants the, the people that are going to donate money to me to think that I'm out of this campaign. I'm not going to be on the ballot. That's his intention from day one. Uh, I assure you that once this is cleared up with the lawsuit, the money will come in and we will beat Mr. Portilla in November, no doubt about it. What What is the status of that lawsuit? Well, uh, we have something, uh, a hearing going on, on on Tuesday and then we're scheduled to have uh, the, the actual hearing uh, sometime this week, I believe Thursday or Friday, we don't know yet, it's up to the judge. I'm gonna ask you uh, something, I don't know if you heard our segment with Marvin Tapia, who if you do qualify, will, if, if you are confirmed qualified, will be your opponent as well. Um, you have both talked a, a little bit about corruption and things going wrong in City Hall. If you do get the seat in District 1, uh, immediate actions, immediate firings, do you have anyone in your targets? Look, uh, what I want to say is this, uh, you the voter, you must choose. I've, I've fought the hard fight. Uh, I've been fighting Portilla since 2019. I've been fighting him since February. I'm going to fight for you guys in City Hall. I'm going to do the right thing. Uh, you have my integrity. You have my word. I'm a family man. Is that a uh, yes? <laughs> is that a yes? Uh, well, I'm going to start. I'll tell you what, the, the city, the city uh, attorney uh, will, would be in jeopardy because I'm going to look at what's going on there uh, very well. Uh, the city manager might be another one, you know, and, and, and like every, everything else you have to, you know, when you get there, you have to open the drawers to see what really is going on. But I intend to clean house, uh, Glenn, let, let me make no, 
you know, uh, ifs or, or, or buts about that. Uh, I'm coming in with fresh ideas. I want to work with the other good commissioners that are there to, to help my area uh, move forward. And like I said, I've been All a right. resident of, of the of the community of Alapata, Flagama, and Graveling for over 37 years. I know it like the back of my hand. I've been uh, walking it for Understood. the last okay. You know, we point I, point well made. Um, we are a time show. Got to go. Miguel Gabella, certainly appreciate you being with us, and we will follow your court case as well uh, in the news. Thank you very much. Okay. I appreciate abortion in Florida law now with the court, and if abortion rights groups are successful, maybe on the Florida ballot for you to decide. The woman leading that effort is with us live next. Southern ground zero at the moment in the fight for the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy without more government restriction. The state Supreme Court is currently weighing whether Florida's 15-week abortion limit violates the state's right to privacy. If it stands, the newer six-week limit will kick in. Meanwhile, a group working to give Florida voters the say has met a milestone in the petition-gathering process, tripping a judicial and financial review. Anna Hokemer is executive director of the Florida Women's Freedom Coalition, the organization leading that citizens initiative. Anna, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Glenna. Give us, if you would, a quick update on the petition gathering process. That is a heavy lift. It comes with deadlines. It comes from with numerical standards. Where are you in the process right now? We're more than 40% of the way to uh, qualifying for the ballot in 2024. Uh, over two weeks ago, we triggered by reaching 25% of the number of the review of the Florida Supreme Court. They need to look at the ballot language and make sure that it's legally sufficient and that it meets all of their requirements. And we're continuing to push forward every single day. We have hundreds of thousands of more petitions already in the hopper, so to speak, in the process of being verified. And we're confident that we're going to get almost 900,000 uh, verified petitions before December 31st of this year. So the let's talk a little bit about the language. Um, I know you know it back and forth. We have a, a copy to put up so that viewers can see what the language is. The ballot title is Amendment to Limit Government Interference with Abortions. Um, kind of hard to see on there, so we'll we'll kind of run with this because what's really interesting about the first line of the ballot summary is no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect patient health. It goes on from there, but I wanna key in on the word viability, which prior to the new restrictions in Florida was considered 24 weeks in a pregnancy. Um, is that word viability, is, is that a, a hard standard and whose standard is that? Well, viability has been defined under Florida statute since 1979, and it's defined as the time at which uh, a fetus, if delivered, would have a reasonable expectation of surviving. It can depend on a lot of criteria, including the health of the mother or the uh, health issues that the fetus suffers from and what sorts of resources are available. It's a different standard if you're in a high-tech urban hospital than if you're in a remote rural clinic. But because it's been the standard in Florida and very well defined under Florida law for so many decades, we believe that there will not be any issue with the term viability. And in fact, most Floridians who've been living 
uh, with uh, legal access to abortion for their entire lives, over 50 years at this point, understand what viability is and are comfortable with that standard. So you are doing, uh, you are asking voters to do what lawmakers would not. We were in Tallahassee as the abortion restriction laws both were being uh, debated on the floor. It was a very, many of the arguments were faith-based. and. And the science that, to your point, has held so long in pregnancy and fetal viability, the science was really challenged by a lot of the lawmakers who feel like at six weeks uh, come up with some science that they quoted that a fetus can actually feel pain and be viable outside the womb much earlier. How do you uh, reconcile that? There's no credible science to support any of those positions. Um, what we know is that the people who understand what's best for women and their families, including uh, their future children and their existing children, are the families themselves and their health care providers. We also acknowledge that everyone has the right to make decisions for themselves without government interference when it comes to these matters, that it's inappropriate for the government to inject itself into emergency rooms and doctors' uh, consultation spaces and around families' dining room tables, and that it is completely inappropriate for someone in Tallahassee who has no knowledge of the circumstances of the mother or her family or her religious beliefs to uh, inject him or herself into those sorts of decisions. So while uh, the, the lack of credibility on the scientific side is not what we object to, it's the utter inappropriateness of the government uh, deciding that it's going to make those decisions for uh, women and their families. And in fact, a majority of Floridians in, in several polls I've seen, uh, a majority does agree with that position. A majority of Floridians would like to see abortion restrictions lifted and have more Glenna, choice. Oh, over 70% of Floridians, when polled, approve of the language in this uh, ballot initiative. 75% of Floridians object outright and reject a six-week abortion ban as being totally inappropriate. And we have tremendous confidence that not only will we get this on the ballot, but in November 2024, we will surpass the 60% threshold to amend the Florida Constitution and make sure that government interference in people's personal decisions uh, is no longer uh, acceptable. So within our state. The, the the very same Florida Supreme Court that right now is weighing whether the restrictions violate Florida's right to privacy, that, that very same court has to sign off on the ballot, ballot language and the and that it meets the standards. Um, are you confident that it will? We are. They basically are going to apply two standards. The first thing that they're going to ask is whether or not it's a single subject. And in fact, it is a single subject. That's why the second sentence is on the ballot initiative, meaning that it does not change the legislature's constitutional authority to require notification to a parent or a guardian before a minor has abortion. We are very clear that we are a single subject ballot initiative. And we believe that they will also find that our language conforms with the standard that it needs to be clear. It needs to be something that is not uh, confusing or meant to false flag. Yeah. The Florida Supreme Court is going to find that this language meets all of those criteria, and we believe that we will find ourselves on the ballot next year. We have, uh, we have you supered under your name as vice mayor. You are vice mayor of Pinecrest. For our purposes today, you are leading that petition effort. Anna Hockamer, really nice to have you on the program, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Glenna.
Up next, threat of a 30-story tower in Miami Beach's historic district put the state's new affordable housing plan into the headlines, but Doral had already suspended new building there because of it. That was next. So many people with us last week reached out about our segment on the Live Local Act, the new state law meant to create affordable places to live. The first sign of unintended consequences, that tower that can now be built in Miami Beach's low-rise Art Deco district. We talked about that last week. But even before that came to light, the city of Doral issued a stop-down of all new development plans to figure out what it all means. And joining us now, Doral Mayor Chrissy Fraga, right here at the table with us. Great to have you in. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. And you, uh, you know, a lot of this attention came from Miami Beach's issue and mm -hmm. headline, but Doral was the first city municipality to do something, and that was this moratorium Correct. against new plans mm -hmm. to figure out what the Live Local Act meant to you. So what have you figured out since then? So our moratorium was to create a standard in which to review these plans by, um, to review a type of process for our staff to be able to process uh, these applications since they're fully administrative. They don't come through the normal... Um, Development applications. Correct, correct. They don't come through the normal uh, applications that process that, that we would normally see, like coming to the city council. And so that's what the moratorium is for. We, we completely understand the preemption of not having authority to legislate the height, density, or the use. That is set in the bill, but there is uh, tools within the bill that we do have the authority to legislate on. However, we don't have standards for them because we would never contemplate an application like the one that has been presented in Doral. Right, I, I, I want to go back to yeah. that, but I, you know, so I'm going to headline what you just said is there's confusion about this. It, it, there's a lot of ambiguity in the bill. Okay, so this is a very well-intentioned bill. I mean, yes. affordable housing is the state's crisis. number one issue, number one crisis, mm -hmm. and this is meant to fix that. Absolutely. And then there are these unintended consequences that we now see bubbling up, but, but what's interesting is that local governments, at least the ones that I've been dealing with since learning about this, seem to have been taken by surprise. Were, were you taken by surprise? This, so was, this I, was quick. I got elected in December um, in a runoff by the time I took office and I jumped right into what was happening at the legislative session. This bill traveled very quickly. It did. It hit the floor February and it was signed into, in, you know, by the governor in March. March. Yeah. <laughs> so it was the first bill on the floor. I was up there in February um, and I had heard that the bill was going through this process. Um, because there was developers interested in taking advantage of it in my city and it immediately rose alarms um, for me because I felt that uh, it really took away the very, very thoughtful process Doral has gone through to have responsible organic growth um, and really plan out our city. It's why we have a successful city uh, in downtown Doral and City Place and uh, Midtown Doral. And we've really planned out the growth of our city. So you know what's interesting about Doral in this bill? So the bill, um, 95 pages worth, but essentially if a developer includes 40% of affordable housing, and there's a calculation for that, Correct. in a development, then for 30 years, then the developer can, under the state's rules, build pretty much with the highest 
height and the deepest density that a city has. Correct. In any place in the city. So it's the height is one mile radius, allowable. Well, mile doesn't radius. doesn't yeah. mean it has to be built. It's whatever's allowable within your zoning within one mile radius of that property. Okay, so now does this, if a developer meets that criteria, does it, it takes away, it essentially puts the developer in control. That's right, um, and that's, and again, there is certain built-in tools that we have the authority to, you know, to, to legislate like, on. Like, like what? Like uh, um, setbacks and landscaping and parking concurrency, um, environmental. Right, but you have to take into consideration that our code, our code has these standards based on what we have planned yes. or the master plan so what is a community mixed use what standards do we use to uh, look at an application that falls under that but nothing really lets us review this process under these standards so and I, I have to use the the example that we currently have in Doral because it is an 18 acre parcel commercial that is next to single-family homes a community that has a golf course and then townhomes and so and now rise. and then now you're talking about putting a 14-story high-rise overshadowing these homes of course residents are uh, are upset and concerned about their quality of life and I just want to kick that up a bit this is Doral we're talking about this Correct. is every city in South Florida Correct. every city in Florida yeah. every resident in Florida has a stake in this yes absolutely and again understanding the intentions of the bill and that they were trying to fix a, yes. a, an issue that we're all dealing with. Doral has been very forward thinking in this matter, I have to say. We actually put a workforce housing component in our comprehensive plan in 2014. I think a lot of cities have done that as, as we well. We saw it coming down mm -hmm. the pipeline and so we felt that we needed to create an incentive for developers that wanted to take advantage of these opportunities um, and, and create you know, safeguards in these aspects. However, Doral's had very, very organic growth and, and that's important to us and responsible growth. Um, so I think creating this bill that was just a blanket layover on every municipality is, is dangerous. And that's where I think that the bill should have targeted a little bit more transit quarters and, and, and thought a little bit uh, better about the impacts on local governments. So this bill, we had the Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo here with us when it was filed. And I have, I went back and watched that interview and what she said, and this is a quote is, this is not preempting local zoning ordinances. It's asking for them to be fast tracked. Oh. Do, uh, do you agree with that statement? No, it does fast track, right? It actually, the bill says you have 30 days to review, 120 to provide, um, you know, uh, you have 30 days to create a response, 120 days to review. That is extremely onerous on a government, a small government like, like ours, in a sense, where our you know, planning department is seven people. Um, and it's also very difficult to review 18-acre you know, site plan yeah. within that time for our planners. So it does fast track it, but it does take away our authority. Um, our zoning, well, our zoning map, our comprehensive plan, what we've laid out to be the vision of our city is stripped away from us at this point because now any property that is zoned in industrial, commercial, or mixed use can basically put a residential component to it. And I think what was really telling was that two developers filed plans the day the law went into effect. So yes. they were waiting. They were the ready. Rings. They were ready. They were ready. Christy Fraga, Mayor of Doral, so nice to yeah. have you here. And I know you'll keep in touch with us as this Absolutely. goes. This is I will be in Tallahassee quite a bit this session. And we're hoping yeah. to see, we're hoping to share 
our experience and hopefully they will implement amendments to the bill that will make it what it's intended to be. We will see you there yes. reporting on it. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be right back. Watch these interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast. Just scan that QR code right there with your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of localpen.com. You know we love to hear from you about anything we talk about here or really anything in the news. Connect with us on social media. Follow, reach out at Glenna WPLG on every social media you have pretty much. Thanks so much for being with us. Have a beautiful Sunday.